Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Legends of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Andy Bernstein. So folks, I think by now, all of our loyal listeners know how much I love doing this podcast. I love bringing inspiring people and their stories to all of you from the world of sports. So this week's guest is one of those people. (laughs) He's also someone whose life's journey mirrors my own in some ways. We were both transplanted New Yorkers. We were both told many times along the way that we wouldn't succeed, and we both proved a lot of people wrong. (laughs) So our guest is Dr. Robert Clapper. He's a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai in L.A., He has operated on many famous people, celebrities, athletes, just regular folks like us, and prolonged many, many careers and improved the quality of life for so many people. He holds many important patents on surgical instruments that have become the standard in operating rooms worldwide. But what intrigues me so much is Dr. Clapper's love for medicine, art, and surfing, and how each work together in his life to make it fulfilling and purposeful. We met when I was a guest on his long-running Weekend Warrior radio show. His questions were always so deep and so full of curiosity. So I had to have him on my podcast. (laughs) Such a pleasure to turn the tables and have him as a guest on this week's show. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you all will too. So here's my chat with the legendary Dr. Robert Clapper. And as always, I'll see you on the backside. So good to see you, man. Same here. Yeah. I saw you on the court with your camera, pic- taking pictures of LeBron James. Yeah. That was amazing. That was wacky, man. I'll tell you. It was uh, a crazy night, a wonderful night, a lot of stress leading up to it, as you can imagine, you know. But uh, so great to have you as a guest here on the Legends of Sport podcast. You know, um, Doc, we, uh, we're turning the tables a little bit because... <laughs> You know, I was a guest many times on your Weekend Warrior show, and it was always an, a profound pleasure uh, and and really interesting for me to talk to you because, not because of what you do for a living, you know, but because you were so interested in what I did, you know, and um, let's let's talk about that, all right? And, and I appreciate you taking the time. You're wearing your scrubs. You probably just came out of an operation, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're unbelievable. <laughs> So, Doc, you know, you're a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon. You hold patents across the board. You've, you've accomplished so much in your career. But, you know, myself, my audience, those around you know you for being much more than, I don't want to say just a surgeon because that's pretty damn good. But, you know, you're, you're a surfer. You're an art lover. You're a sculptor. You're a lover of life. You, you give back in so many ways. Um, can, can, can we talk about how that all developed for you? And I, I want to preface all that by saying you and I, have, we didn't talk about this before, but you and I have a lot in common, man. We're both New Yorkers. You're from Far Rockaway. I was actually conceived in Far Rockaway. That's a whole yeah. other story. <laughs> but we both came out to L.A. at an early age, right? Your father was a carpenter. My dad was an amateur carpenter. He was a doctor. My great-grandfather was a doctor. It was, was an actually a carpenter from the old country. You know, so a lot of intersections here between you and I, right? Yes. So give, give me an idea, Doc, because your journey is so incredible you know you end up in columbia yeah on a rowing scholarship can we start there (laughs) we could start there if you want so my dad fought in world war ii Mm -hmm. 
grew up during the Depression. He was born in 1915. Mm-hmm. And I idolized my my dad. He struggled to make a living every day. He would say to me, Robbie, just do me one favor with your life. Don't be like me. Mm-hmm. He so much downplayed what he did. And the more he said it, the more I wanted to be like him. Mm-hmm. Because he would do a job for someone, redo their basement or their kitchen. And if he saw termites in the two-by-fours, he didn't know what a change order was. He took the two-by-four. He's not going to put new sheetrock or drywall on a crappy stud. So it cost him money to get a new two-by-four. It delayed the job. So every job he did, because he did it right, my mother would have to go to work to bail him out every time. (laughs) But I loved him because he was such an honorable person. Mm. And... My mother would say to me, so, Mr. Big Shot, you're 11 years old. What are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to do with your life? I said, I want to be a carpenter like my dad. She'd go, are you crazy? I got to go to work to bed. He doesn't know. She would go, do me a favor, Robbie. First, you should be a doctor. Then you can do whatever you want. Like any Jewish mother. There, there I am in medical school where they're going, all right, you can use drills and saws and hammers if you are if you do orthopedics. So I go, oh, my God, I could be a carpenter. Nobody told me that. <laughs> but if you want to go back to the beginning, I'll take you to the beginning. Yeah. He worked in the post office and as a carpenter, 16-hour days. I only got to see him pretty much on the weekends and for a half an hour for dinner. And on the weekends, I looked forward to them because I could be with my dad. And my I got to be big and strong, not because I went to the gym, but because I would be schlepping his tools into the rich people's houses. We lived in the poor neighborhood. Mm. And he would always say to me, Robbie, don't touch anything here. A doctor <laughs> lives here. A lawyer lives here. Or this one or that. He was so respectful of education and success that he didn't have. And he was intimidated by it. So that's how I grew up. We are the B team. We're not the A team. You're never <laughs> going to be the A team. We're the B team. Yeah. It was the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. I'll paint the picture for you. You're a photographer, the best there is. So here's a picture for you. <laughs> He's watching the 1968 Olympics. I live across the street from Jamaica Bay where the JFK airplanes you know, rattle the house as they land on the runway. <laughs> but I w- at least I had this playground of the bay in front of me and I would row. And that's how I got away from the intense craziness of my house, of mm. uh, my parents fighting with each other. It was always about money. And I'm the B team because that's what he teaches me on the weekends. So he's watching the Olympics. I know gymnastics. I know track. But all of a sudden, the rowers are going across the black and white screen with the rabbit ears. And he's sitting in his chair I got my socks on. This is like right out of risky business. Remember that scene where he goes sliding with the socks? <laughs> right. I go sliding with the socks. And as I'm seeing rowers in the Olympics, I blurt out, oh, my God, I can do that in the I'm going to be in the Olympics. I want to row in the Olympics. I, I blurt this out. I'm a, you know, 11 years old. <laughs> my father, who I love to death, turns in his chair. I remember this like it happened yesterday and I'm 65 years old. <laughs> he turned to me and said, I'm sorry, Robbie. You can't do that. I go, again? Again, I can't do something. I'm on the B team. He goes, Robbie, that's only for people who go to Ivy League schools. And no one from this neighborhood goes to Ivy League schools. So you can't do that. Mm. And it was that moment that I said to myself, F this. I'm going to prove to you that you maybe you think you can't do it, but you're going to know your son did it. So you'll feel better about yourself. Mm. So long story short. I apply to all the, I don't even know what an Ivy League school is. 
But I applied, and I was very fortunate from my crappy New York City high school that I got into Yale, Penn, and Columbia. But I went to Columbia because they gave me the fattest envelope. They gave me a scholarship because <laughs> of financial need, not because I was a genius. Yeah. And when I got to Columbia, which is different than other schools, they have something called a core curriculum, which means whether you're going to be a physicist, a lawyer, English major, whatever it is, you got to take philosophy, humanities, which I did not want to do. Never been to a museum in my life. Hmm. My sophomore year, I take a class called art history. Okay. Mm-hmm. The professor, 30 kids in the class, lights about to go out. I made it to class. I'm sitting in my, and the guy turns to the class and says, by the way, I hope none of you are pre-med because I don't give A's. I'm going, oh, I'm not here to learn anything. I'm just here to get A's because I got to get into medical school. I got to get out of this class. So I literally start putting my pencil, my books into my knapsack and he shuts the lights off. He puts up a slide and I'm literally going to get out of this class right now. First day. And he says, you'll appreciate this as a photographer. He puts up a slide of a painting by Renoir. He says, and I want you all to appreciate the visual noise in the corner of this painting. Okay, he puts the word visual together with the word noise. Visual is seeing, noise is hearing. In in Far Rockaway, it's illegal to put visual and noise together in a sentence, okay? So I'm like, here, visual, noise, as I'm putting this stuff together. And now, painting a picture, on my left shoulder, an angel, on my right shoulder, the devil. The devil's going in my ear. You got to get out of the class. You got to get an A. You don't have to learn anything in college. You just got to get good grade. You got to get out of here. And the angel's going, did you hear what he said? He said visual noise. (laughs) This is probably the smartest person you've ever been exposed to. Robbie, you should stay. You're in college. You're here to learn, so you should stay. Anyway, Mm. I stayed. And this man changed my life. Did you get an A, by the way? I got an A. And if you want, I can tell you what the... Three hours, final exam, Mm -hmm. one question. Look this up. Your viewers need to look this up. Pablo Picasso's painting, Three Musicians, versus Renoir's painting, Madame Carpentier and Her Children. Beautiful woman sitting on a couch in her living room versus Picasso's painting of three figures wearing African masks where, where the eyelids are, are no pupils of the eyes. It's the same color as the wall behind them. In other words, when you go to listen to music, you don't care what Bruce Springsteen looks like. You just want to hear the music. (laughs) So the whole idea was identity. If this woman on the couch, the painting didn't look like her, she ain't paying you for her portrait. Yeah. So the one question was compare and contrast these two paintings. Three hour test. That was this guy was so hard ass. But I started to write. This is about identity, you know, Portrait painting versus who cares what the music. I went on. I just was right three hours straight. I get an A. And now I'm a sophomore. You have to declare a major. This is 1975. Mm -hmm. You have to declare a major. In 1975, if you were pre-med, you're not not getting into medical school unless you're a biology major, chemistry major. This is what they beat into you. So I'm supposed to meet with my pre-med advisor in college. I walk in and it's like Columbia was an all-male college at the time. Now it's co-ed. I walk into my advisor to sit down with me. He looks at me, goes, okay, kid, you're pre-med? All right, you got to declare a major, biology, chemistry, biochem. I go, wait a minute. I just took this class. 
They made me take it. It's the greatest thing ever. Art history. Can I major in art history? The guy looks at me and goes, are you stupid or what? He said, I'm telling you, you want to get into medical? you got to be a scientist. You do that, son, and you'll never get into medical school. Suicide. And I'm looking at this guy here and I'm going, okay, here's another guy in my life I ain't going to listen to. I majored in art history. Can I tell you, I went to the museums in Manhattan one-on-one with these original, but nobody else gets to do that. So I major in art history. Now I go and apply to medical school. Vanderbilt, Columbia, all these big shot schools. I'd go to the interview. They'd look at my application. They'd look at me. they go, wait a minute. You're an art history major from Columbia? I've never seen that before. I'm going, oh, God, this is where they drop the ax on your head. He goes, tell me something about Michelangelo. And I would tell them a story about Michelangelo. Every medical school I applied to, they said, son, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to tell you right now. You want to come to this school? I'm going to recommend you. I got into every medical school I applied to. And because of that, teaching me how to look at paintings and analyze sculptures, I've invented tools used all over the world, millions of cases all over the world. I'm on the radio. I write books. It it has enriched my life, as you know, to no end. Unbelievable story, Doc. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I was I was told the same thing. I, I applied to Art Center here. I, I moved out to California. I get to Art Center, and they said, uh, "So, you know, what commercial uh, discipline of art are you going to go into? You know, you open a studio. You're going to be a fashion photographer." I said, "No, I want to be a sports photographer." And the the chairman of the department looked at me and said, "What? <laughs> we don't teach that here. It's like that's not going to." And then he said to me the magic words, no one makes a living doing that. <laughs> so, of course, like you, I rattle off, you know, Neil Leifer, Walter Yost, John Zimmerman, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, fast forward, I'm in the Hall of Fame. Thank you very much, Mr. Yeah, Potts. exactly. The rest in peace. Anyway, Doc, fast forward, okay? You, you have this love of history. By the way, my uncle was the was the chairman of the art history department at Brandeis for 50 years, by the way. Wow. And, you know, it was a revolving chair, but he taught there for 50 years. So it's very much wow. in, in my blood, too. You have this epiphany, right? I mean, I know I'm, I'm fast forwarding a lot, right? But you end up, you, yeah. go, you end up. Your go, show. You have this. I'm, I'm so loving being a guest on someone's show. Thank you, Doc. So y- y- you, your wife, you and your wife go to Italy, right? You, you have this aha moment, right, with Michelangelo, you're in his studio, you see the great marble that he had carved from, you're feeling the vibes, right? Can you describe that moment where you, you, you it really just enlightened your life even more? So I studied Michelangelo. I studied art history. Mm-hmm. And I'm a surgeon. I love to use my hands. But I've never sculpted before. <laughs> so in 1994, my 10th wedding anniversary... I finally sell and license some of the patents to some big, big companies. My wife looks at me, God bless her, married 39 years. She's from Westwood. She's from out here. (laughs) She says to me, so you're not a poor kid from New York anymore. You can do whatever you want. It's our 10th wedding anniversary. What do you want to do? Meaning, you know, let's go to Hawaii, you know, do do something like I I said to her, did you say I could do whatever I want? He goes, yeah, you now, you're not that poor kid from Far Rockaway anymore. You can do it. I said, whatever I want. Okay, you know what I want to do? What, Robbie? I want to go to Italy. I've never been out of the country. And I want to go 
through Italy from where Michelangelo was born and follow his life through his sculptures till his last days hmm. because he evolved as an artist, just like you have. OK. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at her and I said, Ellen, did you say I could do whatever I want? She goes, yeah, Robin, you could do whatever. You I go. And Ellen, I want to touch one of his sculptures with my hands, which, by the way, is illegal. You're mm -hmm. not allowed to touch a yeah. priceless piece of art that made by Michelangelo. But she said, I could do whatever I want. So I'm dreaming like, a, you know, like Elon Musk going to Mars. So we go to Italy. Boom. We get to Florence. And by the time we check into the hotel, I don't know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. The museum's close at four o'clock. We get to the David because that I'm like, I got to get in Florida right away. And there's a line with busloads of Japanese tourists <laughs> dumping people off. Like it'll take a week before you get into the front door. Around the block, around the block. We get on the end of the line, and it's like 2 o'clock. I'm going, Ellen, this ain't going to happen. Uh, I, I'm just doing the math. There's no way we're going to get into the museum. And again, to make a very long story short, I leave the line. She goes, where are you going? I said, Ellen, there's someone in Florence. I don't know who he is. I'm from New York. But there's a guy here who can get me through the exit to get into this building so I don't have to wait on this line. She looked at me and goes, are you crazy? That's not like, anyway. So I wind up like six blocks from the museum. I don't speak Italian. They don't speak English. I, I, I wind up six blocks away at a place that it says Instituto Galileo Galilee. I go, all right, I know who Galileo Galilee is. I know what institute means. So I bang on the door. The guy answers the door. They bring me up to this, this guy who runs it. And he's typical Italian, sharply dressed. He's got a cell phone in this ear, a cell phone in this ear, Rolodex, computer. He's like doing six things at once. He finally gets off the phone. He spins around in his chair. I'm sitting in front of him in his desk. Yes, how can I help you? I said, I want to go see the David, but I don't want to wait on the line. Can you get me in to see the David? <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, yes. But I must ask you a question. I go, OK. He says, how did you hear about me? I go, who the hell are you? I have no idea who you are. I just helicoptered into your office. He starts laughing. He goes, you mean you don't know who I am? I don't know who you are. I just want to go to that. I don't want to talk to you now because we're wasting time. And he says to me, I have a company that teaches Italian to CEOs of General Motors and, you know, IBM. I teach the language through art. So I take people into the museums. So he gives me a brochure for $5,000. I'll take you. I go, uh, I'm not spending $5,000. Yeah. I just want to go to the damn museum and I don't want to have to wait on that line. I just need someone to get me in there. He looks at me and goes, well, for $35 an hour, I can have one of my teachers take you. Oh, perfect. So next thing you know, this guy shows up like a half an hour later by bicycle. And he used to be one of the curators of the Bargello Museum in Florence that has three Michelangelo sculptures. Hmm. So this guy shows up. I look at him. I go, okay, come on. Take me to the David. I don't want to wait on the line. He says, no, we can't go today. It's too late. I go, well, then what am I hiring you for? He goes, I was the curator for the Bargello Museum. Come, I take you to my museum. Tomorrow we go to the David. So I'm like pissed off. I'm begrudged. I follow him with my wife. Four o'clock, we get to the front door of the museum. He used to be the curator. They're locking the door. <laughs> he waves to the curators who are leaving. Oh, they wave hello to him. They unlock the door for him. It's my wife. It's me and it's him. We close the door and start turning on the lights. <laughs> he, I'm going, oh, my God, we're in the museum by ourselves. 
He says, come, there are three Michelangelo uh, sculptures here. I go, I know, Brutus, the Bacchus, the Madonna of the Steps. I, I rattle these things off. Mm. He looks at me, goes, very good. Go up to the second floor, I'm turning the lights on. And I'm standing in front of Brutus, okay? The last person to touch this sculpture was Michelangelo. Mm. I looked at him and I said, can I touch the sculpture? He looks at me, he goes, I don't see anybody else around. <laughs> and you talk about the aha moment. Yeah, yeah. I touched. It was like electricity came yeah. through the rock to my hands. Mm. We come back from the trip. Two weeks later, this is 1994. There's no internet. In the mail, UCLA extension catalog. I come home from work one day. It's two weeks later. My wife says to me, here, Robbie. I go, what are you giving me this for? She says, turn to page 25. I turn to page one. Beginning stone carving. I said, what are you giving me this for? She goes, Robbie, you're a great surgeon and you really love this stuff. I bet you you're a great sculptor. Mm. Like it was her intuition. Yeah. So I signed up Wednesday night, seven to 10 o'clock at three hours. I get to the class, UCLA. So it's all these college kids and it's me and the teacher. So I'm sitting there seven o'clock and I've worked the whole day, seven o'clock at night. The teacher begins the class, professor. Now it's a beginning class. I want to teach you all we're going to work in a very easy stone to work in. We're going to work in limestone, sandstone. It's really soft. We go, I raise my hand. Do you mind if any of us work in Carrara marble? <laughs> she goes, it's the hardest thing to work in. Why would you? We have to start with something soft. Okay. And she goes, and we're going to make geometric shapes, like a pyramid or a cylinder or an egg. I raise my hand. I go, do you mind if any of us tried to copy Michelangelo's Brutus. She goes, hey, are you going to do this in Carrara marble? I go, yes. She goes, sir, we're going to be over here making eggs and cylinders and pyramids. You get to do whatever you want. And like two weeks into it, and I got all my books with the chisel marks and looking at the pictures, and I'm doing the sternocleidomastoid muscle of, you know, Brutus's neck. And she comes over to me. She goes, Dr. Clapper, you don't belong in this class. You need to go to a different... And that's how it started. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, I'm thinking about that that moment that you described as electric when you touched the marble. And I, I remember in The Agony and the Ecstasy where he talks about how he could feel the figure in the marble. Like Michelangelo could literally feel it, see it he, in his mind. And it, and it was, I think he described it as his job on this earth to bring that forth, right? The only person to, to, to actually go to his studio that he let watch him was his biographer, Vasari. And Vasari wrote, watching him work was as though a woman was nude in a bathtub under the water. And watching him work is as though he pulled the plug of the drain and the water recedes and the figure appears. Unbelievable. Wow, what a great description. So so how much anatomy did Michelangelo, this is 500 and some years ago, he, he, he worked on corpses, he cadavers. I mean, he had to be almost like a pre-med student to become a sculptor, right? Yes. Um, I, I need to show you the David. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll take, uh, I don't have it in front of me. I should have had it in front of me to yeah. show you. But if you look carefully at his, there's a lecture that I've given all over the world mm -hmm. called, I, I give it at Harvard. I gave it in Paris. I gave it in, I gave it at the Getty Museum. 
Over a thousand people came to the talk. They were turning them away. The, the head of the Getty Museum said, Dr. Clapper, this is like a rock concert. We don't have this at the Getty Museum. <laughs> That's how many people came to the lecture that I gave. It's called Michelangelo's Sculptures, How He Manipulated Anatomy. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example, and I hope your listeners will do this. Go Google Michelangelo's David. He made the sculpture in 1503. Okay, remember that, 1503. Look carefully at David's left hand holding the top of the slingshot by his shoulder. Look carefully at the left hand and you will see the back of his hand has skin and the tendons, the extensor tendons, no veins. Now look carefully at Michelangelo's David's right hand holding the other end of the slingshot where he has the rock. It's below his heart, it's by his waist. Look at that hand, guess what you will see? You'll see the bulging veins. <laughs> veins in the right hand, no, well, you and I know it's 2023. You put your hand above your heart, the veins collapse. You put your hand below your heart, do it, <laughs> your, your listeners, go do it and you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, remember I said 1503? Yeah. It was not until 1627, more than 120 years later, that Dr. William Harvey, the most famous cardiologist in London, was knighted by the Queen of England for writing the paper discovering circulation, arteries and veins. <laughs> so 120 years before the doctors discover this, he's sculpting it, he sees it. Now, you could argue, hey, Dr. Clabber, he's just being true to the model, just copying the model, okay? Bernini didn't do it, Donatello didn't do it, Rembrandt didn't do it. He saw this. <laughs> so my professor, Dr. Ranawat, in orthopedics, who invented the knee replacement, who I was blessed to be at the hospital for special surgery for my training, and then Curl and Job, he used to teach me, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Meaning, Michelangelo saw something and sculpted something that it took 120 years later for doctors to discover. Wow. Wow. Incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. You have some great quotes. I mean, I, you said them, so they're not going to be news to you. But you said, quote, I use chisels and hammers just like he did, Michelangelo. I can feel him guiding me when I'm working on a piece, right? So does that hold true also in the operating room? Can you feel sort of his vibe or his spirit with you? Can you imagine me teaching a young orthopedic sir, which I do, I teach. Mm-hmm trying to teach a young orthopedic who knows all the book knowledge. I'm now trying to teach them. Yeah. And they'll ask me, why did you put the retractor here and not here? And I'll say to them, because I see the sciatic nerve. And they'll look over my shoulder in the wound. They'll go, I don't see the nerve. What happens after 16,000 surgeries, I've been doing this for 34 years and 500 surgeries a year, <laughs> is in just as you as a photographer, right? Whatever you, whether you're a computer person, a plumber, an electric, whatever you do for a living, teacher, a business person, you do this for 34 years, right? You have a meeting. What does it take you? Two seconds to go. He's a jerk. I'm not listening to him. <laughs> She's really smart. She probably knows everything. Like you size up the room. For you, I remember Francois Truffaut interviewing Alfred Hitchcock, and he asked him the simplest question. What's your favorite part? of making the movie, Alfred Hitchcock. And you know what Alfred Hitchcock said to him? None of it. <laughs> I hate making the movie. He goes, you're kidding, you're Alfred Hitchcock. You're the greatest movie director of all time. 
what's your favorite part of the process? He goes, ah, that's a different question. <laughs> that yeah. when I hear the story, I start making the storyboard in my head. Mm. I make the movie while I'm reading the book. That's my fun part. And I will tell you, as a sculptor, that's the fun is the simple block of stone to do the dissection in my head mm. is the most fun. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. For me too, it's also the process, you know, it's also yeah. setting up all these cameras, having a plan, all that stuff. Doc, you know, a lot of what you're talking about sort of addresses work-life balance, right? You're in a very stressful yeah. profession, literally life and death every single day. And you're surfing, you're sculpting, you know, I think I read somewhere they used to take Wednesdays off, you know, I mean, how has that kind of made your career um, even more rewarding and sort of um, stretched it out for this long? And I don't see you stopping anytime soon either. So can you just talk a little bit about work-life balance? Because I know we're all, that's all on the tip of everybody's tongue right now. So I went to medical school in New York at Columbia, and I told you where how I grew up. So paying for college, paying for medical school, meant I worked in the Catskill Mountains <laughs> as a waiter, a busboy, a car hop, because that was the maximum amount of money that I could make in my world to pay for these things. Other kids, God bless them, they uh, were able to take the vacations they deserve and not get burnt out from being in school. I didn't have that luxury. So mm -hmm. as soon as I didn't have to go to class, I went to work, hitchhike, because I didn't have a driver's license at the time, the Tappan Zee Bridge. I think they have a new name for it now. I think it's the Cuomo Bridge or whatever. And I go up Route 17 to work in the different Catskill Mountains. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted. So my fourth year of medical school, the dean announced, we're going to let you do electives. You don't have to stay here at Columbia for rotations. You can do electives elsewhere, meaning go to the Mayo Clinic, go to Massachusetts General, go to the fancy schmancy hospitals in the country, expose yourself to them. All I heard was, oh, thank God I could get a break. I'm going to the beach. So I did a month at the University of Miami. I figured it's the beach, Miami. I never saw the beach. I never saw outside of the beach. They had 12 gunshot wounds a night. Oh, it's the busiest trauma center. Like It, it was insane. There's so much for Miami, but I figured I'd be close to the water. I never got to see it. Then I did a month at, at UCLA, but I grew up watching, like you, Flipper, my favorite TV show, right? But also Hawaii Five O. <laughs> this was the greatest beach in the world. Was either Florida, but or this exotic place called Hawaii. Yeah. Okay, so I go to the dean's office, and there's an elective book, and I finagle my way that I'm going to do an elective at the University of Hawaii. This is March of 1983, long time, 40 years ago. But the University of Hawaii does not want schmendricks like me from Columbia to go on vacation there. These electives are actually only for their students. But I ignored the front page that said, don't apply if you're not from Hawaii. And anyway, I went anyway. So I show up the first day, I drain my checking account, and the only elective I could do is cardiology. There's nothing else available during this time period. Yeah. I show up the first day. The guy was super nice. The cardiologist, he looks at me, and goes, Robert, it's been made aware to me that you're not a University of Hawaii student. You have to go home. I just flew here through the night. I mean, <laughs> you have to go home. I don't even have the money to, for the return flight. How am I going to go home? He says, no. And he was super nice. You could spend time with me today, tomorrow, but you're going to have to leave. I said, oh, I'm going to have to leave. This is terrible. I just, he goes, listen, you'll, you'll read EKGs with me. We'll see patients today, tomorrow, but you're going to have to go home. This elective can't count for you. So he was super nice, and he's wearing an Aloha shirt, no white coat. <laughs> he's got a stethoscope around and say, I'm going, 
I, I, I died and went to heaven. It was like the greatest thing. So I read EKGs with this cardiologist the morning, and then the whole clinic clears out because it's lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And now I'm depressed. I got to get back. He's not going to let this count. It's awful. I'm eating my sandwich. All of a sudden, a nurse screams out, code blue, code blue, meaning someone's having a heart attack. Mm. And no one is responding. I'm eating my peanut butter, and <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. I'm a medical student. Please help. Cold blue. I put the sandwich down. I go. She looks at me. I look at her. This guy, she points to this 300 pound Samoan guy who they're doing a Holter monitor and he's flatlined. Hey. He is going. Oh, my God. I look in the room. Get the Ambu bag. Get this. I start yelling at her. I jump on. And I'm I'm from New York, you know, <laughs> county hospitals. I, I could open your chest if I had to, to squeeze your heart. I jump up on top of this guy. I hit him in the chest. Hey. I give him barking orders to her. Start CPR. And you look at the monitor, and all of a sudden, boop, 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 hey. boop, boop, oh boop, my boop. God. She says to me, Oh my God, we saved him. I looked at her, I go, uh, that's the whole idea. <laughs> she goes, I've never saved anybody before. This is incredible. Wow. I said, Well, congratulations, we saved him. She looks at me, she goes, Oh my God, who are you? I said, I'm I'm Robert Clapper. What are you doing here? I said, I'm a medical student. She goes, oh, wow. How long are you going to be with us? I said, well, as a matter of fact, they're kicking me out of this place because I'm not from Hawaii, University of Hawaii. She goes, who told you that? I said, well, I'm." she grabs my hand. He's still doing paperwork. He's in his office. She bangs on the door. He lifts his head up. Yes. Oh, hi, Gladys, he says. Dr. Morris, do you know what this guy, he just saved one of your patients' life. And you're telling me he has to go home? She says, I'm the charge nurse here. Honey, he ain't going anywhere. <laughs> he, he goes, okay, Gladys, okay. So I got to stay. Oh, my God. And now I got to find a place. to Talk about divine intervention, Andy. Yeah. Now, now I got to find a place to sleep. A flight. I have I no arrangements because I'm being kicked out. <laughs> Long story short, I for $200 for the month, I get to sleep on this Hawaiian guy's couch in his living room, which was perfect price for me. And I... And this guy wanted me to work during the day and then enjoy Hawaii in the afternoon, which was perfect. So the guy I'm renting the, the spot in the couch from says to me, we're going surfing. You want to come with us? I go, I don't know how to surf. I'm a Jewish guy from New York. What do I know how to surf? He goes, we'll teach you. So I go to the beach, Waikiki. This is the lesson. Here's a board. Follow me. I paddle out, you know, the little waves and it's a sandbar. It's no big deal. I follow him out. He goes, okay. When I tell you, paddle as hard as you can. This is crazy. So I, he says, okay, the waves are coming. You can see the horizon. I turn the board. He goes, go, start paddling. And then just stand up. This is my lesson. <laughs> well, I start paddling. I paddle as far. And I don't know if you've ever surfed before, but you're working hard, hard. And it, then it's as though God taps you on the shoulder and says, I got you, Robbie. Hmm. Stop. I got on my knees. And I stood up very first time and I'm looking at Diamond Head on this two foot wave. And I remember looking at going, OK, God, here's the deal. I am going to do your work for the rest of my life in exchange for one thing that I get to do this. So people ask me all the time, you're a New York guy. What are you doing surfing? What are you doing in Los Angeles? Here's the answer, because I get to do that. And here's the metaphor. The nose of the surfboard is your future. The tail of your surfboard is your past. But the surfer stands in the middle and learns to live in the moment. 
Hey, Doc, that is so profound. Unbelievable. You know, I have visions of my kids when they were like preteens on that same beach, you know, the same thing, paddle out and then just start paddling. And uh, a couple of them got it and a couple of them didn't. (laughs) Wow, what a great lesson. Oh, my goodness. Well, listen, man, you've been unbelievably generous with your time. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Just (laughs) want to know the last thing I want to know is that you've stopped doing your radio show. Show, right, the weekend warrior after what twelve years, so six hundred shows, incredible six hundred yeah. shows. Incredible. I uh, Kurt Sandoval has asked me to get involved to do TV with him on ABC TV. Great, there's a whole world of YouTube, uh-huh. but you know the radio has changed, yeah. uh, and it's mm-hmm. I, without going into great detail, things changed, and I mm-hmm. chose to evolve as an artist. Let's yeah. Just- I understand. Look, 600 shows. That's a lot. Saturday mornings, getting up that early. I miss early. the audience. Yeah. I miss the audience. Yeah. I miss telling them to find a total stranger and do something nice for them. Mm-hmm. I miss, but yeah. it, it was absolutely the right time to move on. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to being an artist, being a surgeon, being a surfer in the future. Right. But you did say somewhere I read that you said, I want to do for orthopedics what Dr. Mehmet Oz has done for nutrition, health, and medicine. I want to make it easier for people to understand. So maybe that's the next chapter, Doc. Huh? Kurt Sandoval is a special guy. I've always dreamed of having the sportscaster who really knows the sport Uh look at Patrick Mahomes dislocating his patella. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Or didn't need surgery. Right. Or Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl making lateral movements with a high ankle sprain. Mm. How is he able to do that? Why is Steph Curry not playing right now? What's his injury? Mm-hmm. That's what I really love bringing Clapper vision. Yeah. The well, I love Kurt, great friend, and uh, you, you guys would compliment each other so well. So I'm going to look forward to that. I'm going to offer um, a photo. If you need a photo to back up what you're talking about, you know, I'll, I will be there oh. for you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Andrew. That's but, very sweet of you. Listen, I see your work every day in my office yeah. because I have the Derek Fisher shot that you, the 0.4 seconds. Yes, sir. Signed by Derek in my office. That's your photograph. It is. It is. And I, I think you have a Mamba Mentality book. And if you don't, I will get you one. I have a Mamba Mentality okay. book. And I, I did my homework last night. I was so <laughs> many things I wanted to talk to you about. What an amazing reverse engineering book that is mm-hmm. where Kobe's telling you, this is what I want to depict. Go get that photo. Yeah. I remember when you told me that's yes. not the typical way yeah. people write those books. Mm-hmm. They look at a mass of photographs and pick good ones. Whereas Kobe said, this is what I want to talk about. Go find that picture of Dikembe Mutombo pulling on my jersey. That's right. No, it was a daunting task. And uh, the Mamba was, he, he didn't take no for an answer. So He's the big know. reason why I will tell you that I really started to lose the passion for being on the radio, mm. how much I'm a Laker fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a Will Chamberlain fan, mm-hmm. but I really, like all of us, miss Kobe so dearly mm. that it was tough to feel it uh, like I used to. Well, I, I can't agree with you more. <clears throat> you very graciously had me on your show right after our book came out. And um, little do we know that uh, such tragedy was going to be ahead of us. But his legacy, Doc, you know, you yeah. more than anyone, I think, can appreciate what his legacy means yeah. to all of us. And it's my job to keep that going. You know, his book now, our book is in 28 countries or something. It's a worldwide bestseller. He, wow. he transcends the game, as we know. Yeah. And that's He's all a I, renaissance man. Yeah. I like to combine yeah. the world of art and science. Right. 
right. and surgery. Kobe Bryant is the is there so just like you that mm-hmm. you want to be have a happy life. You want to have a life balance. Mm-hmm. Bring art into your life, no matter what you do for a living. Mm-hmm. You'll be a better computer person, a better electrician, a better surgeon. Yeah. The more you bring art into your life. Oh, I see that with my wife. My wife's a lawyer. She's got a very stressful job, but when we get go to a museum or we're traveling and we, you know, see beautiful art, it just it's so cathartic for her. You know. Yeah. And I I feel the same way. So. Um, Listen, Doc, we got to catch up over like, you know, a nosh or something one of these days. Okay. But what a great, great pleasure. I mean, <laughs> you're just an amazing guy. And uh, I, I just, your your energy is so, it's just so incredible for me. So thanks so much for taking the time, Doc. Go, go, My pleasure. go, you know, sew somebody up somewhere or do something <laughs> over there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Listen, one of the joys in life are the people you meet along the way. And meeting you, Andrew Bernstein, is a true highlight. Those 12 years with ESPN, getting to meet you, that was a highlight. Well, thank you. I feel the same way. Uh, it's interesting how our different jobs and paths brought us together, right? Yes. So incredible. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of the day, Doc. Thanks so much. And okay. uh, really, you. really Talk appreciate you it. You too. Okay. okay. My pleasure. Okay. Bye. Well, I can't thank Dr. Clapper enough for taking the time from his busy, busy, busy schedule to chat with me today. What an incredible person he is (laughs) with so many inspiring stories. I am truly grateful for our friendship. Please, folks, go and Google Michelangelo. If you don't know that much about him, go Google him and study his genius as an artist and sculptor. It's so fascinating to understand how the intersection of medicine and art has been so impactful to Dr. Clapper throughout his life. Many, many thanks to my terrific producer, Eugenia Chow, and our editors, Megan and Sean, as well as our social media manager, Michael. Remember, everyone, you can find us on the iHeart app and online, as well as Apple and Spotify and your favorite podcast platform. My photography can be found on Instagram and Twitter at ADB Photo Inc. I'd also like to mention that I have a new sort of masterclass type workshop that's going to be unveiled in June. It's a 12-part series. It's going to be a live interactive experience that people can talk to me and we can discuss all the different things that have made my career successful, life lessons, things I learned from the Mamba himself, tenants of the Mamba mentality, and so on and so on. So folks, go check out beyondthelens.live and sign up because this is going to be really, really fun for all of us. I thank everyone for continuing to support the Legends of Sport podcast. Remember to rate and review and tell all your friends. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another great guest. So until then, stay safe, stay well.